Let us pray, church. We just uh, thank you for this day, and we thank you for all the fathers in this room and the people who you've placed in our lives to just um, to mentor us and to lead us and to guide us. And most of all, God, we just thank you for who you are and how you just show us the way, God. You sent your son to die for us so that we might be called saved and we might be called children of God. And for that, we are so thankful as we celebrate Father's Day today. We just pray over our services here and at home church, God, and um, that you would just prepare our hearts to hear what you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, happy Father's Day to fathers and father figures. So, it is kind of interesting that, um, I say interesting, I mean it's it's not, it's tragic, but um, the, the statistics on fatherhood are not good in the u.s um depending on how you split the demographics it's you know in some demographic groups it's uh you know somewhere around 60 percent of households don't have a father figure and in other demographic groups it's as high as 75 percent so i mean it's kind of crazy to think you have entire sections of the population where you know you can line up 100 people and then if you look at them you know 75 of them didn't have a father figure um Following the events in Sandy Hook when uh, they were trying to, you know, do their after action and figure out what the contributing factors were that led to something as a tragedy like that, the of all the different factors in an individual's life that they looked at and they said, what is the most consistent indicator of somebody who goes and commits some sort of heinous act like this? And the, the, the one thing that was the, the strongest correlation of any factor in the lives of any person who had done any kind of big tragedy like that was no father figure in their lives. So it's not to say that <clears throat> people who don't have father figures in their lives don't, you know, grow up to do terrible things. Um, but I, it, it is to sit here and say that, you know, there is an importance of having a, a, a father or a father figure, um, whoever that ends up being. So um, that's not the sermon. That's just kind of a side note because it's Father's Day, and it seems, seems appropriate. So as we were, I was, uh, uh, you know, we were kind of milling about and everything before the service. Uh, Sean and I were kind of joking a little bit about different, um, <clears throat> about different like messages and things like that that you know we like that people give or don't give in front of in front of churches. And uh, I kind of joked around that um, at one point in time I had somebody who who uh, I was I was talking with this uh, talking with a friend and I said what would what would happen in the church we were in at the time what what would happen if I turned around and I basically you know was talking about being able to identify what a church or an organization or a family or whatever actually values by looking where they pump their energy and the resources and everything and I said what would happen if I turned around and I got our budget and I basically just said here are the top three items on our budget blah 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 church who is your guide and he looked at me and he just said, oh, well, I'm pretty certain that'd be the last sermon you probably ever gave. And, uh, <clears throat> and so uh, a, few, uh, a, a few times later when I had a chance to preach, I said, well, a friend told me if I ever made comments like this, it'd probably be the last time that I ever preached. Well, here we go. <laughs> so, and I preached after that. So I, I guess I guess people who were offended just like ignored me or something. Uh, well, today's not necessarily exactly about that, but it does kind of get into like sometimes I think within churches and, and kind of Christian, <clears throat> I don't want to say organizations, but kind of communities, you know, or cultures, we kind of start taking certain things for granted. And I think one of those things that we take for granted is what it actually means um, what it means to really be a Christian. Um, and I don't mean that from like a dogmatic perspective. Uh, I guess what I'm talking about is what does it mean for someone to say, I am a Christian? What does it mean for somebody to say they're saved? Because, I mean, you could turn around and you could list off any any number of different things that Christians um, are kind of expected to do. And honestly, that a lot of Christians you know, probably should do. Um, but does that really make a Christian? Does that really make the composition of what makes somebody a saved individual with a relationship with Jesus Christ? I mean, you could throw all kinds of things in there. You could throw missions in there. Yes, missions are absolutely a great thing to do, and it's highly encouraged. And, and we all, in our own ways, in our own lives, you know, have a mission to fulfill. <clears throat> but if you don't feel called to grab a passport and go to... Um, 
I know we support a group in Zimbabwe. Uh, that's usually just my go-to African country, so I don't mean that literally. But if you don't feel the need to uh, grab a passport and go to the Congo and go tell people about Jesus, does that mean you're not a Christian? You know. Well, what about uh, even things that are more basic and fundamental? What about uh, studying your Bible? You absolutely should be studying your Bible. We absolutely should be understanding what the Scriptures are. If somebody doesn't know, doesn't really know the Scriptures all that well, if they're not like a scholar, are they not saved? So it begs the question, what is a Christian? What, what mechanically makes up an individual? Are we going to sit here and reach the gates of glory at some point in time and God say, well, you know, you didn't, you didn't check off the sufficient number of check boxes on my list of what composes a Christian, and therefore you're not allowed in. If you had just gone on that mission trip or if you had just built that deck for that, you know, uh, uh, handicapped individual or whatever, then you would have made it in. But, you know, that, that's not how that's going to play out. So we have to say, what does it mean to really know or to, to, really, uh, to really have a relationship with Jesus Christ? This was something that I, I did when I was doing a youth ministry. I, I went through a lesson kind of like this. And what I thought was fascinating were how many individuals had grown up their entire lives inside the church and maybe even knew a lot of the verses and all that kind of stuff. But yet, by the time they got to the end of actually thinking about what does it mean to really have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they ended up saying, you know, I don't know if I would go as far as saying that like I wasn't a Christian but I don't know that I knew I was a Christian. I don't know that I knew that I had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, there were people who had been in the church and maybe even had been baptized for a while, who, who you know, youth, who turned around and wanted to get baptized again because they said, now I understand it better. Now I feel like I have a better appreciation <clears throat> of what it means to have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, and more importantly, what it doesn't mean. Uh, the things that maybe I thought in the past it meant that it really doesn't. So over the next couple of weeks, that's one of the things that we want to do um, is is kind of look at this. And uh, yes, there there you know we do have a baptism service that's coming up uh, on July 10th. So there is that opportunity. But really, the purpose here is just to get us to say, look, if you feel very secure that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then. Let's go back to the basics and just not forget what those things are and reinforce what it truly means because I think that helps us a lot when we're interacting with other Christians, when we're interacting with other people who also have a relationship with Jesus Christ um, to, to kind of know what are the things that are kind of those basic fundamentals and then what are things that, you know, in reality it's like, hey, we're all on different, le we're all on different levels of like scriptural knowledge. We're all at different levels when it comes to our prayer life. We're all at different levels when it comes to our willingness to, you know, get up and go do service projects. Um, you know, it's important to keep those things in mind. But if you are in that situation where you've been saying, I've been listening to, you know, people talk about Jesus for a long time, um, and maybe it, it, it didn't totally click because I thought it was all the dogma and everything, then, okay, maybe, maybe you need to have a little bit of a renewal and everything. It goes back to what I've said in the past, that making a commitment to Jesus Christ is not a once – in a lifetime flash in the pan kind of moment. It's frequently something where we have to, and something we'll talk about in one of the coming weeks. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the scripture does not, uh, we're, we're not called by Jesus Christ to pick up our cross once and follow him. We're, the, the way the verse goes is to pick up your cross daily and to follow him. And so oftentimes it is a renewal. It's a thing that has to happen over and over again. So, that being said, uh, I want to get into this week what we're talking about. And really what, what I want to get into is something that we see um, that, that we actually read a little bit last week when we got into James. There's this one verse in there that, that gets reinforced other places throughout the New Testament. But I like the way James puts it because he says, you believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. I think the thing I like about this phrase in here is that it emphasizes the fact that pure, like, simple knowledge of who Jesus Christ is does not equate, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Those are not the same thing. You know, having a, a academic knowledge of Jesus Christ, well, there are tons of people who have that. Um, there are uh, no, notable individuals who are uh, atheists that, um, uh, is the guy, I'm blanking on his name, Richard Dawkins. So, you know, there's like, Famous notable atheists like Richard Dawkins, you know, turns around and spent kind of his whole life trying to, de you know, trying to, uh, you know, advocate that atheism is, is the one true way. Um, sounds a lot like a religion when you put it that way. 
Uh, and when he does that, he, he academically knows about the person of Jesus. You know, he knows the stories and all that. I mean, you consider even the people who saw Jesus, even people who saw him like perform miracles, and yet they didn't follow him. They knew Jesus, but they didn't follow him. They hadn't committed their lives to him. One of the things I find so interesting is how after, you know, Jesus had his two mass feedings, right, where he fed thousands of people. Well, you know, there's the one feeding he has where, you know, he feeds all these individuals, and then after that he ends up, uh, you know, hearing about Lazarus and everything, so he kind of retires. Well, the disciples go one way, and the Jesus goes kind of another way. But what's funny is, so you basically have two different people, and you kind of get the impression from the way it's written in the scriptures that, you know, Jesus very much kind of was grieving and wanted to be alone, but the, the disciples kind of went a different way, and people could see the way that they were going. And what I find interesting is that, uh, of these thousands of people, a lot of those people didn't follow Jesus. Like they had just heard what Jesus had to say, but what you see on the other end of the Sea of Galilee, when things pick back up, you don't see these throngs of thousands of people. They all went back to what they were doing. So they knew Jesus. They saw Jesus. They even experienced the supernatural nature of Jesus. But you know, it, it, it just leads one to wonder, have they actually, you know, in their head made some kind of commitment? And at the time, based on who Jesus was, it's probably kind of doubtful. Um, but at least for us, it just reinforces that simple knowledge of who Jesus Christ is doesn't really mean that we know who he is. It doesn't really mean that we know and understand who he is. Um, it's uh, uh, kind of the way that since it's Father's Day, I feel like I can get away with some 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 ostracizing jokes. So... Like, you know, it's kind of the same thing as when people joke about, like, uh, you know, listening to your wife complain about something. And then, you know, when they say, are you even listening to me? You go, yeah, I heard everything you say. They go, no, but are you listening to me? Well, like, that's almost how I kind of feel like it happened. You know, the, the scriptures talk to us where it's like we can sit here and we can read about Jesus and we can hear the stories and we listen to people talk, but like, are you really listening? Are you really picking up on what Jesus, not just what Jesus wants to be in the book, but what Jesus wants to be to you? And I think that becomes important. If you don't do that, it leads to some kind of weird, wonky stuff. So, big fan of statistics. I think it helps us understand the population that's around us and everything. So, some of the things I was looking up in uh, Gallup polls, and it was kind of funny because I wrote this sermon before I saw that Gallup literally this week just published another study talking about uh, belief in God and belief in our country and everything. Um, hop on Google. It's worth a read because it is very interesting. It does, again, kind of show you, lest anybody sits here and thinks that like, oh, well, the American church can just kind of keep on going the way it's always gone. Go look at the numbers and you're going to see exactly why that is not going to happen even in a community like Bowling Green. You know, it's for generations and generations. Belief in a God was pretty consistent, 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 consistent. And then you hit the last like 20 years or so, it starts going like that. We are hitting an inflection point in this country. And it's something where on the one hand, you got to be sad about the fact of, you know, the loss of belief. But on the other hand, a party looks at it and goes, I don't know. Is this really losing Christians or is it just losing people who verbally said they they believe in Jesus Christ but didn't really understand who he was in their lives? You're almost just kind of separating the sheep from the goats. I mean, that might be happening too. I'm just going to throw it out there. So that being said, uh, I was looking up some statistics from the last time Gallup looked at all this stuff. And it was kind of interesting because of the – not talking about people who believe in God. People who believe in God was you know some somewhere in the, the mid-lower 80s of percent. But people who claim to be committed to Jesus Christ, specifically using that word, that they have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. Um, they didn't use the phrase born again or anything because a lot of people that automatically kind of counts them out. But you know, people who say, I've committed to Jesus Christ, 62% of Americans. I actually thought that was kind of encouraging. I was like, 62% say they're committed. I understand people who say they're affiliated with, with the church or with Christianity. 62% say they committed their life to Jesus Christ. That's kind of interesting. Um, but here's where things got interesting in a negative way. Um, so only 56% of Americans think Jesus was God. So what that means, if you do the math on that, is that one-eighth of the people who say I've committed my life to Jesus Christ, one-eighth of them don't really believe that Jesus was fully God. So that's fascinating. So then you dig into a little bit more and you say, okay, Jesus, a part of it is he's God. And what we know is that 
a house that stands against itself cannot stand, right? What happened whenever the Pharisees tried to claim that Jesus was doing these works because he had the he was empowered by the power of Satan, and he's like, "House standing against itself can't can't uh, stand." So I'm God. I'm not not Satan. Well, we know that, and so what we know is that Jesus is blameless. He's sinless. That was kind of a requirement in order for the whole grace thing to work. So it's interesting then that only 46% of Americans think Jesus was sinless, which means that a quarter of those who say they've committed their lives to Christ believe that Jesus committed sin. That's fascinating to me. And I think part of the reason why it's fascinating is because it gets to the heart of exactly what we're talking about. Academically knowing who Jesus is, like like just kind of knowing the person of Christ and being aware of the stories and everything – doesn't necessarily mean that you really know who Jesus is. It doesn't necessarily mean that you understand who he is. You know, I'll say it again, that that verse in James, it's uh, again, James 2.19, is good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. The demons believe in the person of Jesus Christ. I went, I didn't include it in my sermon, but I went and I was looking at the uh, um, the, the various accounts in the, the Gospels of Jesus being tempted in the desert when Satan goes up to him. And what's fascinating about this is Satan himself, when he's trying to tempt Jesus in the desert, he's going there and he's not totally saying things that aren't true. I mean, he's going in there and saying things like, oh, well, you have the power to turn these turns these stones into bread and, you know, to, to, to create water. So why are you going to... That is true. He has the power to do that. But, you know, it was, it was you know, that's not in his nature, right, like to, to do that. And that's what Jesus was revealing. And, you know, uh, the, the whole, uh, you know, Jesus being, you know, the king of everything he sees, you know, sitting on top, of the, uh, on top of the temple. Well, Jesus is the king of everything that he sees. But, again, it's not his nature. It's that, you know, Satan was really exemplifying there the idea of knowing Jesus, like knowing about Jesus and the facets of Jesus, but yet in his actions, in that case, you know, uh, really kind of demonstrating maybe how sometimes things get misinterpreted a little bit when you don't really understand the nature of Jesus. And I think that's really why I think this is so important because when you, if you think about knowing somebody but not really understanding who they are, what that can cause, I mean, just think from a practical sense what that leads to. Think about any number of time when either you've seen this with somebody else or if somebody's done it to you, because I think we've all kind of experienced this in some way, shape, or form, where somebody sees you in a context or they see you in a moment. And because they see you in that context or in that moment, they assume that's just you. They assume that's you all the time. You know, it's kind of funny because I know I, I, I very much kind of live with uh, uh, my, my feelings and my emotions on my shoulders, so to speak, and, and very kind of loud and outgoing and all that. And it's funny because, uh, you know, sometimes I do it because this is kind of how I, I, I let the steam off so I don't explode. But, I mean, part of it is that uh, it's just kind of like shtick. It's just kind of a, a part of how I live and how I do things. But it, it's, you know, it's funny how many times then I've, I've gotten a little bit uh, a little bit irritated or kind of put off by, by individuals who will then turn around and act like, well, well, I can't control myself. Like I can't control my emotions, you know. Um, hey, it's on me because I put out this certain image. But I mean, but the point is, is that you know, it's an example of where people see me in a certain light, or they experience me in a certain way, or in certain settings, and then they kind of assume, oh, well, that's that's who who that individual is all the time, right? Um, and if you think about what that can lead to, it can lead to all kinds of things. It can lead to just simple misunderstandings of your intent. I mean, if somebody sees you and you're never serious and you're always joking, then that one time that you are being serious, they can easily maybe have a misunderstanding that maybe you're being sarcastic or maybe you're being uh, denigrating to them or something like that, right? It's just a simple misunderstanding, but it's a misunderstanding because they think they know you based on their limited experience. You know, it can lead to that judgment of who that person is, obviously. I saw that one person do this one thing one time, and therefore I think that's just who they are. I, you know, I saw them... I guess kind of the classic academic example is I saw somebody, you know, screaming at their kid when they were over at Food Lion. And so I just assume that they're a bad parent, right? That's kind of like the silly, simple example. But, I mean, it can lead to those kind of things. You know, that lack of communication. I don't know how to talk to somebody because I've jumped to the conclusion that I really know who this person is. And so I base all my communications around that idea of who I think they are, then there's also aspects that I may miss out in the relationship. If I don't give somebody the credit that they are a full, complete person, then I may miss out on part of the blessings that I have from from getting to really know that individual. 
All of these things apply to our relationship of Jesus Christ when we don't stop and attempt to actually understand not just the stories of Jesus, but how those stories become, become something that is real and practical in our lives. It can lead to the exact same things. It can lead to misunderstandings of what Jesus was doing and saying. We see this all the time with people who want to almost try to weaponize the Bible, right? Where they want to turn around and pull out individual verses and use those as like gotcha lines against Christians to say, well, just look at this first, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, we could talk about, well, you know, it's out of context, not intellectually honest and all that. But really, fundamentally, what a lot of that seems to come down to is they have an image in their head of who Jesus is. And they've assumed that is Jesus. And so because of that, then they pull out, you know, these different verses and it kind of supports that, you know, that they think Jesus is the cruel person or the, the person that's inconsistent and therefore can't be true or, or whatever. So it can lead those misunderstandings. It can lead to the judgment, the whole idea of, you know, when things don't go your way and then you want to turn around and get mad at Jesus because, well, how could he let this happen to me? Well, do we, do we understand everything about Jesus, you know? And you pretty quickly start getting to, you know, these, these discussions about understanding the ideas of, you know, there being a bigger plan and what Jesus really wants us to live for and all these kind of things. It starts changing our perspective. Lack of communication. If I don't really know Jesus, it becomes very hard to actually talk and communicate with him. It becomes very hard to have a healthy prayer life if I'm not trying to understand the nature of who Jesus is. And then obviously that rejection of blessing. I'd go back to those statistics. You know, if there are a quarter of people who claim to have committed their life to Jesus Christ that think Jesus committed sins, then I look at that and say, how much of the magnitude of grace are you missing out on if you think he's sinned? Because that means that a part of what he suffered on the cross, he deserved, you know, which kind of takes away from the, the, the magnitude of what he did when he died for all of our sins. So the reality is that there is something that comes along with understanding, you know, or at least trying to understand who Jesus Christ is. The reality is that we can't ever truly understand entirely the nature of Christ. I mean, it's just kind of the nature of God. How, how do you understand God? You know, there, there's a lot of things. I got in this conversation with somebody who, uh, it was actually a conversation at work, uh, where we were sitting there in between getting coffee, and, uh, you know, he was, he was like a physicist kind of guy who, who wasn't, I wouldn't consider him like a big Bible thumper or anything, um, but he was like, you know, he did he did go to church and everything. And we start talking about like creationism versus evolution, all this kind of stuff. And one of the things we started getting into was this, uh, and I'll try not to go down the rabbit hole too much. We started getting into this whole thing of, you know, well, the reality is that people get so spun up on this whole, was it seven days of creation? Is it not seven days of creation and all that? And from like a pure physics perspective, the thing that we started getting into where we were just kind of agreeing with each other was, you know, this is kind of interesting because if you think about what would have happened during creation where you have all things, all matter, all everything in a certain way and God's kind of creating it, then the idea of time totally gets thrown out the window because time is not – time is fluid and, and that's something we don't think about. It kind of blows your mind. But like time as you get closer to things where there's a lot of stuff all together – totally gets skewed and it's why they say if you ever tried to like uh fall into a black hole you're gonna learn physics today you didn't know uh but if you ever like fell into a black hole then what would actually happen is you'd hit a certain point in time where time dilates so much that it seems like everything stops and this is one of the reasons why if you ever watch one of these really trippy movies where they have like space and black holes and things like that and they do something where it's like, well, I was in the black hole and you were outside and I was only down there for 30 minutes, but that was 20 years out here. That's what they're referring to in like a Hollywood way. They're referring to that. And so what we were talking about is that the, the whole concept of time at that point in time totally breaks down, which now introduces like, why do I go into that? You may not care about any of that. Fine. But what that means is that means you have this God that we know that this whole time thing exists in the universe today. Like we have observable ways of identifying this. And that means that we must have a God that's not limited by time. So when we say God is everywhere all the time and knows everything, it's because you have a God that's not locked into time. The whole idea, the whole like all the concepts and things that rip Christendom apart when it comes to concepts of like predestination and all this kind of stuff, they all start totally falling apart when you go, God is not limited by time. And so I guess what I'm saying is that this thing that we can't even really comprehend what it's like to exist outside of time, God lives that way. 
How do you totally understand this God? You know, it's almost like I'm, I, it's almost like I'm posing this impossible task to everybody to say, we can't have a relationship with Jesus unless you really understand him. But it's not that you understand him entirely. Part of it is, and I'm going to crib a phrase that I heard a, a mentor use before, part of it is that we struggle to understand. And I don't mean that in that we struggle to understand, we can't understand, and we're struggling. I mean that as in like we're actually struggling. We could not struggle. We could just not put in the effort. We could just not worry about it and go, nah, whatever, God's not understandable, don't worry about it. But we try to get to know him. We try to understand him. And you can do this in very like non-academic type of ways. Just trying to understand better why did Jesus do the things he do, did? Why did he tear the, tell the parables that he told? Why is it that he... He committed the he performed the miracles that he did, but then he didn't perform other miracles. Why 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 to all these things that we read in the Bible? By trying to actually put the effort in and trying to struggle to understand, we can, you know, have revealed to us more and more the nature of who Jesus is and how he applies to our life. So this has all been very nice. It's all been very kind of esoteric. You're another Oxford word of the day. It's all been very like kind of high level, but where does this become very practical? Well, this is where I get into a chapter in Luke that I was reading, and, and I think quickly this chapter in Luke has started to become my, it, it might be at least for now, my favorite chapter in any of the Gospels. And it's in Luke 5. And part of it is because in Luke 5, you're seeing a lot of the, you're seeing a lot of the nature of who Jesus Christ is in this one chapter in honestly some pretty massive, magnificent ways. The first one, I'm going a little bit of out, out of order here, but in Luke 5, the first one is starting in uh, verse 18 and going to verse 20. And we see this interaction right here. This is the story that you guys might be familiar with where there were some friends that uh, carried this individual who uh, uh, couldn't walk uh, to go see Jesus. And they were all, uh, all these people were packing this house that Jesus was in. So the only way that they could get the friend in there was they went up to the roof and they opened up part of the roof and let the friend down like on a mat, which, I mean, you got to imagine how kind of almost terrifying that would be if you're in there, like like right here, like listening to a guy talk and then parts of the roof just start like crumbling in and then it opens up and then like, you know, something off of a movie, this guy on a mat just like lowers down like this. But when this is happening, I find this interaction, the way that Jesus addresses this individual just prior to healing him, I find amazing. So in verse 18, just then some men came carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Sing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. There was something about that when I was reading that that to me was just so impactful and it's just this idea that Jesus looks at this individual and there are many ways that he could have addressed him. You know, he could have addressed him as, uh, well, he could have just not addressed him. I mean, he does that all the time. He um, uh, could have just uh, uh, called him a guy, you know. I mean, he, he but he, he refers to him in this more intimate way by calling him friend. Some translations, depending on your translation, will actually say that he refers to him as son. Like, but he refers to him in this, like, close and intimate way, and there's, there's just something about that, that that just struck me very differently. And I'll, and I'll point it out there that sometimes I think people have this tendency to go and talk and commentate and preach on things in the Bible that they go, well, this is something literally we see in the Bible, you know, or that we think is the best understanding we have. This is not necessarily that way. The events are what they are, and Jesus did what he did. The thing that we know that is the, the actual indisputable thing is that Jesus addresses him in, in a certain way that is more than just casual. But to me, for some reason, just in English, seeing that word friend in there, it just struck me differently. And it's something that I've, I've heard probably thousands of times in different songs and, 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 and you know, articles and books and things like that. You know, the idea that like, oh, you know, he's a savior and he calls me friend and all this. Like I've heard this thing before, but there's just something about that when you really think about it and you really internalize what that means that to me just shows exactly how how loving and gracious this God is because this is the same God as the, uh, of the old Testament. This is the same God that, you know, created all things, the same God that exists beyond time. It's the same God that committed all the miracles and did all the things, 
but yet this God looks at us in our injured, crippled, destitute state and calls us a friend. That's amazing to me. And so we end up seeing that Jesus is a friend to the friendless. He's, he's this individual that in a very practical sense, he wants to have this friend-like relationship in our lives, to be that individual who is there for you, who does want to listen to you. He does want to care for you and go through things with you. He wants to be very much a companion and partner with you in your life. And I know that sounds weird. I'm not talking about partner in perspective of you're equal with God and all that. But I'm just saying that Jesus portrays himself in this way, even though he doesn't have to, that I can come down to your level. The fact that Jesus even existed at all is proof of that, that he wanted to, that God wanted to send himself down at a peer level to understand us. And I think that that's important when we talk about who God is and not misunderstanding him and understanding that God does see when you go through your pains. He does see when you go through your sorrows. He sees when you struggle with things. He sees He sees when you sin. He sees when you screw up. And he wants to help you kind of get over those things. But in the same way, he also sees you and doesn't. he doesn't judge you. He's that good friend. He's that loving, compassionate friend who who wants to, to see you have redemption. That's why he came and died on a cross. So Jesus is a friend of the friendless. Another thing that we see... If we rewind a little bit in uh, chapter 5. So I'm reading, uh, this is uh, verse 8, and then uh, the second part of uh, verse 10, and then 11. So I'm just cut, cutting out everything to be a little succinct. So we end up seeing this interaction right here. This is Jesus selecting Simon Peter, which, which you know, uh, again, he is just so impactful. He says, when Simon Peter saw this, uh, saw Jesus perform the miracle with all the fish on the boat and everything, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I... I am a sinful man, Lord. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed Christ. Right here, what we're seeing is the fact that Jesus is very much a guide to the broken. He's very much an individual that in this moment, a lot of times we talk about him picking the disciples and we almost look at it as a selection. It's a calling, something like that. But I guess I look at this and go, you know, this is very much like, it, it very much comes across in a very different way than that. Not necessarily as a like a drafting of soldiers into the army kind of thing, which is always how sometimes I think we try to, we kind of see it. It's almost like, like Jesus is this army recruiter. And then these people answer the call and they go into the army. Like it's almost how we treat it. But that's not really what happened. What happens is we frequently see Jesus going to people and just showing his nature to them and going, this is a little glimpse of who I am. And these people immediately turning around saying, I'm not worthy. I am a broken individual. How can you come up to me? But yet Jesus goes to them and says, follow me. So the calling oftentimes happens in that way mechanically where there is a recognition that I am a broken individual. I shouldn't be the one who's going to come along with you on this journey. But yet Jesus still goes up to them and says, I will guide you. So this is where we see that Jesus is a guide to the broken. So we have that one, that Jesus is a friend of the friendless and Jesus is a guide to the broken. So, you know... I can't think of something that's more practical than that, you know, unless there's an individual who has never once felt broken in their lives. You know, that you have this Jesus who is saying, like, I don't want you to just exist in this misery. I want you to come out of it. There were individuals that Meredith and I used to, uh, uh, admittedly her more than me, we used to, uh, you know, th there were some individuals that, that we talked to who, you know, just seemed like everything was always terrible. Everything was awful. You couldn't get in a conversation with them in the middle of a Bible study or anything like that without it being whatever you have going on. Oh, well, let me tell you about the thing I have that's so much worse. And, you know, it, it would get to the point that they're like, oh, everything is terrible. Isms would just get more fantastic and more fantastic and more fantastic. And you're like, you realize Jesus doesn't want you to stay here, right? Like Jesus is going to be there for your brokenness, but Jesus isn't your he's not like your eternal companion in the midst of your brokenness. He's your guide to something better. And maybe that something better is physically better, maybe it's not. But the point is is that Jesus Christ comes here to give you a joy that transcends whatever your brokenness is. He's there to guide you out of whatever you're currently experiencing. Whether that means you come out of it physically, awesome, praise him, because he guided you throughout the process. If he didn't bring you out of it, then still rejoice, because he's your guide who's gone ahead of whatever you're about to experience, and he's guiding you through it so that you can have a peace and you can have a sense of inner joy. 
Jesus is a guide to the brokenness. We're not just here to wallow around in our shame and our misery and our pain and all that. That's not the point. At some point in time, you got to want to get better, not because you can get yourself better, but because you have a guide who can help carry you through whatever you're currently experiencing. So we have that a little bit further on. Again, in Luke chapter 5, and verses 12 and 13, we end up seeing this little interaction right here. While he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had, who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, fell down and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And, and immediately the leprosy fell from him. It's something where we don't really deal and experience leprosy a lot in our lives. But, I mean, I guess metaphorically we very much still do. You know, leprosy is this thing that, you know, for which there is no cure. You know, you just kind of had to deal with it your whole life. Uh, I was just listening to, a, to this thing that was talking about uh, the uh, uh, king of Jerusalem during the Crusades that the, the movie, I don't know if I've talked about the movie before, Kingdom of Heaven, but if you ever watch that, they have this guy who's the, the, the king of Jerusalem and, and this individual he was kind of the uh, he was the, the leper king and so in the, the movie they show him and he, he did this you know where they show him where he just wore a mask all the time it's because from a very young age his uh, tutors and everything realized he actually had leprosy so he grew up quote unquote with leprosy and he ended up dying at a very young age despite the fact that he did all these amazing things seemed like legitimately a very good guy very deep relationship with Jesus Christ from all from all given accounts uh, that go beyond kind of the typical uh, uh, medieval isms that you hear about, you know, a lot of kings and everything. But yet, he he wasn't saved from this thing. He started to go through this thing. It's something that's uncurable. You can't really get over it. But yet, you had Jesus that was coming in and turning around saying, I'm willing, be made clean. There's kind of this fascination in here that this individual was openly acknowledging that Jesus had the power to do this. This individual was acknowledging that that Jesus is the Savior from the unsavable. That if Jesus is willing, then he very well has the power to be able to do this. And so that's why you see him word it in that way, not saying, Jesus, can you do this? You know, you could sit here and break down, because whenever I see things like this, I always go and sit here and start doing my little, like, parallel Bible with, with Greek and stuff like that. You know, it wasn't a request as in, like, a query, are you capable of doing this? It was very much a... If you are willing, you can make me clean. It was a declarative statement that he was saying, I know that you can do this. And then Jesus, in a declarative way, tells back, explains back to him, I am willing, be made clean. Jesus can save us from even the things that we don't think we can be saved from. This extends both to the physical and to the metaphysical. So when we start looking at you know, the fact that we, we exist within these, 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 these emotional and these these spiritual states sometimes that we don't feel like we can get out of, that Jesus Christ can save us from those things. I don't know an individual who has, you know, uh, what, what, what I feel like I've seen as a, as a very, very uh, a deep, sincere, aggressive, like, pursuit of who Jesus is, who hasn't said that it's at various points in time that they had moments where they felt, spiritually destitute where they felt like you know i i i feel like i'm going down something i just don't know what it is i feel like i'm either doubting things or i have thoughts or or i i'm, I'm getting kind of pulled away and i don't get what it is i'm doing all the things i'm reading my bible i'm praying i'm doing all this kind of stuff and i just don't know what it is that i feel like i'm not feeling the same thing with my relationship with jesus that i've always felt in the past and you know sometimes when that happens i feel like what that is is we're just we're feeling and we're experiencing a little bit the, the nature of sin, the fact that we do still have sin in our lives regardless of how good we get, regardless of how close we get in our relationship to Jesus Christ. We are all flawed individuals. It's why it becomes so important to sit here and have this renewing of the mind and the heart that occurs whenever we sit here and we, we, we you know, do experience Jesus Christ with other individuals. And we do have these moments that are almost like little spiritual awakenings where we realize, you know what, I am a saved individual. I have made a commitment, but you know, I need to get back on the right track. I need to almost like recommit myself. I need to pick up my cross daily and I need to follow you. 
So these things do happen, I feel like, even for very, very good Christians. And it's in those moments that's almost a little reminder of the fact that there is this unsavable thing, at least from our perspective, that we are all susceptible to. And that is the bonds of sin. It's something that we'll never not have to struggle with. It. It's always there. But yet, Jesus still provides salvation. Jesus still provides the way to be able to get over that hump, to be able to overcome whatever we fall. So Jesus is the friend of the friendless. He's the guide to the broken. He's the savior from the unsavable. And then the last thing I have on here, you know, once again, later on towards the end of Luke 5. This is 27, 29. I'm going to skip, uh, and, then, and then we're going to skip a little bit further into 30 and 32. Um, uh so what we end up reading in here is, uh, is this. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. He said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. In verse 30, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is where we get into what I think is perhaps uh, probably the, mo the most I impactful, at least immediately in our lives, aspect of who Jesus is, is that Jesus is the comfort for the rejected. It's interesting to me whenever even within Christian circles you end up feeling this sense of rejection. Because I end up looking at that and going, I wonder in that moment if the Christians who are doing the rejecting are recognizing the fact they have now become the Pharisees in this story. <laughs> it's, it's, it's this tone deafness that, that, that occurs all the time. And it's one of the reasons, too, why I've looked at it and I've said that I feel like so often uh, the way that the world wants to define who we are and what we believe, not we as Christians, but just we as individuals, we have to be very, very careful to put that, you know, either ideally totally off the plate, but at the very least second to who we are in Jesus Christ. Because there is kind of a mentality that, you know, in our world, our Western world that's so polarized ideologically and politically and everything, you're either on this side and you believe all of these things are canon and that's what you think, or you're on this side and you believe all these things are their canon and that's what you believe. But the reality is that uh, I, I feel like you end up looking at the scriptures and you end up seeing absolutely a Christ and a Savior that transcends how we define human beings and human nature. You end up having a Christ who stands for righteousness and stands for virtue and wants you to have a virtuous life that's focused on him, yet at the same time has this sort of radical acceptance of people who find themselves in the midst of their sin. And it becomes very difficult and I think very dangerous to start drawing imaginary lines that where all of a sudden somebody has become repentant enough that we start accepting them. What I feel like we end up seeing here is Jesus openly just offering his arms outstretched to these individuals to embrace them. And if they take it, they take it. You know, we can deal with the whole ramifications of, wow, they have actually made like a, like, a, like a legitimate change in their life and their, their circumstances. And are they actually still addicted to these things, these lifestyles or whatever? We can argue about that later. But it's very simple when you look at the biblical model that Jesus just goes, what? You feel like you're rejected? Here you go. That's what he did. You look at the early church, that's exactly what the early church did. They, they, they experienced so much, so much explosive growth because they, they modeled this behavior of Jesus Christ where he just outstretched his arms and readily accepted people that everybody else rejected. So it's almost like if you want to look at it, whenever people turn around and say, well, how do we be good stewards, not necessarily of our money, so don't forget, uh, but uh, not necessarily of our, of our money. I'm looking at our stewardship team people. Uh, but of you know our our care and our attention, our affection and our our devotion. How do we be good stewards of that? And so often, you know, we want to look at it and start kind of saying like, well, you know, we should focus on people who maybe kind of exhibit these behaviors or those behaviors or uh, people where we think there's a possibility that they're going to get over whatever they're in. And you know, I kind of look at it and say, well, when I look at how how Jesus acted. I feel like the criteria for how do we identify uh, who we need to be reaching out to is, are they hurting? Then yes. 
That's it. That's it. That's the end of the story. It doesn't matter if they brought it on themselves. It doesn't matter if, if you think after you welcome them that they're going to continue bringing it on themselves. That's fine. We'll work on it. It's a, it's a process trying to grow closer to God and to know him and everything. Uh, we'll work on it. But if they're hurting, then yes, <laughs> that's what it is. And I think that's the most immediately applicable aspect of who Jesus is in our lives. So just right here in this one chapter from these, these four stories, there's a lot more in that chapter. You see, Jesus is a friend of the friendless. He's a guide to the broken. He's a savior from the unsavable. He's a comfort from the rejected. So when you end up looking at this, you pretty quickly start reaching into this, this uh, uh, reaching this conclusion where you say you can't, really describe all of the aspects of Jesus. It goes back to what we were saying that it's a little bit of a fool's errand trying to entirely understand the nature of Jesus. So it's not about saying, do we entirely understand him? It's about saying, are we trying to, are we trying to understand who Jesus is in the Bible and what impact that means in a practical sense in our lives? How does that influence how we talk and how we think and how we act and all these different things? So that being said, there's a thing, and I've, I've, I've shared this before with people that were, that were at our last church, but um, there is this message by uh, that's like an hour and 30 minutes long. I'm not about to give you the whole hour and 30 minute long thing, but there's this message that's like an hour and 30 minutes long that was given by this guy that uh, basically was marched with Martin Luther King Jr., whose name was uh, Dr. S.M. Lockridge. And he's a great preacher, fantastic preacher. Um, and he has this one message that is arguably his his most famous message. And in part because you can go on YouTube, there's all kinds of really amazing montages and YouTube videos and things like that about it. Um, but what I wanted to do was, I guess, share with you a little bit. It's kind of an abridged version of uh, one section of that message. And in here what you see is him try to kind of wrestle with that idea of understanding who Jesus is and, and what Jesus is in our lives. And so this is what he says. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of, king, uh, king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduredly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder, do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder, if, do you know him? He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's in. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. So when you look at all of these things, even after all of these superlatives, you end up saying that this individual even says, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's simply indescribable and at a certain point in time you end up having to experience the love and the grace of jesus christ to truly get it but even before then we can still struggle and strive to understand who christ is to try to get to know this christ who 
is all things to us exactly when he needs to be them. I've talked in the past about how when you look at how how God describes his name in the Old Testament, when he's introducing himself to, to Moses, the first time God ever really formally says his name, that his response is, I am that I am. And when you do that in a very literal sense, it is there, there, are, there are six or seven different ways that that can be translated into English. And every single one of those gets to the idea that, you know, it's I will be what I will be and I intend what I intend and, and I will complete what I will complete. And so what we end up seeing in the life of Christ is that Christ is going to be exactly what we need to be when we need to be it. Nothing more and nothing less. He's not going to be the vending machine, but he's also not going to be the absent God that has nothing to do with our lives. God is exactly when and where and what he needs to be, when he needs and when he intends to be it. That's the Christ that we serve. And that's the Christ that individuals need to come to know when they claim to have this kind of casual understanding of who Jesus Christ is. He isn't just a Bible story. He isn't just a bunch of construction paper cutouts that we do during VBS. He's not a commitment that we had one time when we went to a youth camp. And he's not just an individual that's in a crusty hymnal that's in the back of a pew. Jesus Christ is a real God and a real individual who has real impacts on our lives. That is the Jesus Christ that saves. That is the Jesus Christ that desperately wants to have a relationship with every single one of us. And that is the Jesus Christ that died on the cross for our sins in order to prove it so that we would understand it. That's my king. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do you know him? So let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for this time that we've had together. And we just pray that that you would help us to understand who you are, that you would reveal to us your your nature and all the things that you do. We pray that you would um you would help us to be able to see beyond rhetoric and 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 pretty songs and things like that and understand that you're a real person that's bigger than just all of the the wrappings that we surround uh, our religion with. Help us to understand that you are a real God, that you are a loving God, and that you are a God who wants to have a very real, very tangible impact on our lives. Father God, you're so many things that, that we say and, and so much more than that. Help us to give you the honor and the glory that you deserve. In your son's precious holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.